Um, okay, so this week we'll start with chapter 15. Before I forget, I did want to remind everyone, um, I think I did this the first time I taught, but just to remind you, like, there's really great resources out there. This is G.I. Williamson's commentary on the standards. Uh, it's very helpful. Uh, PNR publishes this. This is A.A. A. Hodge, uh, Archibald Alexander, if you're curious what the A's are. Um, Banner publishes this. This is a really good commentary. And then this one as well. This is a new one that was published really recently by Chad Van Dixhorn, um, who's probably the world's leading expert on the Westminster Assembly. And it's nice because I'll show you if you can see. Well, it's got uh, what he does is he lays out the historic text on one side and then a modern version of it. And then the rest of it's just his comments on it. So it's, it's really helpful as well. Um, Anyways, and so I've, do what, Chad, this one, uh, Chad Van Dixhorn is just called uh, Confessing the Faith. He read like 100,000 pages of the minutes and the notes. Yeah, it's crazy. They all wrote like 15 pages a day of journal entries. Yeah. Yeah. A journal entry per pint is like the, (laughs) uh, yeah, his, uh, he did a, his doctoral thesis at Cambridge was on the Westminster Assembly, and I think on, like, a particular period of the Assembly. Um, anyways, just so you know, great resources out there, and I, uh, for the lessons, I tend to just kind of compile them together and pick and choose what, what I think is most helpful. So um, before we get to Chapter 15, I'm going to briefly review um, what we've talked about so far. The first eight chapters kind of operate as a chunk together. And chapter one answers the question, how do we know God? And this is on the Holy Scripture. Uh, chapter two is, uh, deals with God and the Trinity. And so that's answering, okay, what is this God that is revealed to us in the Scriptures like? Okay, so it talks about God and the Trinity. Chapter three deals with God's eternal decree. And so that answers the question, okay, how does God behave? Okay, so how do we know God, the scriptures? What is this God that's revealed to us like? Uh, That's chapter two. Chapter three is how does God behave? Okay, chapter four deals with the first uh, work of God, creation. Chapter five answers the question, how does God rule over that creation? And so chapter five is on providence. Um, chapter six deals with creation and in particular, one of the, uh, not one of the first problems in creation that is fall, sin, and punishment. Chapter seven introduces the way in which God will alleviate, um, uh, the negative consequences of the fall. And that is through a covenant. And so chapter seven is God's covenant with man. Chapter 8 gives us more specificity about that covenant and discusses the um, way in which the covenant will be carried out, but most importantly, the way in which that covenant will be mediated, and that is through Christ. And so chapter 8 is Christ the mediator. Um, And that is really helpful. That's a good chapter to return to because not only does it deal with Christ the mediator, but it shows how... um, Adam failed in his representative, uh, sorry, failed in his role as our representative and how Christ fulfills it. And then chapters 9 through 16, 
So that was, if you want to kind of clump them together, the first eight, you know, you could probably roughly call the acts of God. Um, the emphasis is definitely more on God's acting. And then chapters 9 through 16 deal in particular with the way in which one is saved. So the um, um, salient theme in chapters 9 to 16 is salvation. And chapter 9 begins with free will, what it is and what it is not. Um, And that makes sense because the subject of salvation is human beings. And so the Westminster divines start with one of the most fundamental parts of being a human being, namely free will. Chapter 10 goes on to explain how God overcomes, because I said namely, yeah. (laughs) Chapter 10 goes on to explain how God overcomes our corrupt wills. And uh, chapter 10 is on effectual calling. Chapter 11 is on justification, okay? So free will, but remember from previous chapter, we've got the fall and sin, so our wills are corrupted. Even though they're free, they're corrupted. So how is that going to be overcome? Through effectual calling. And then chapter 11 is on justification. And justification explains how those who have been effectually called will indeed be justified, you remember, um, you, go, you all are familiar with that. The Puritans called it like the um, golden chain, I think, the, the very end of Romans 8 there. For those who have been predestined have been called, and those who have been called have been justified, and those who have been justified have been glorified. Okay. Chapter 12, we haven't got to yet, um, but chapter 12 is on adoption. I don't think we've got to that uh, Wasn't that yours, Joshua, chapter 12? Okay, so we will get there at some point. Um, But chapter 12 explains the immediate effect of justification. The immediate effect of justification is adoption. That is being adopted into God's family and the great benefits therein. Chapter 13 explains how once we have been adopted into God's family, how should we live? And in part, it's to be ever-growing in holiness. And the word for that is sanctification. Pastor Brooks just prayed for that, that God, out of his mercy, would give it to us even now. Um, And so once we've been adopted into his family, we are expected, not even expected, but commanded to be sanctified. Chapter 14, which is what Robert spoke on last week, is saving faith. And this explains the nature of faith that was given to us that secures our justification, adoption, and sanctification. And finally, we get to repentance. Um, And to be more specific, this chapter is called Repentance Unto Life. And so that might make you wonder, is there another kind of repentance? And there is. There's a false repentance, which we'll talk about later. But chapter 15 is titled Repentance Unto Life. And this explains yet another aspect of our salvation and ongoing sanctification. That is repentance. Um, And I I do want to point out something to you, that in dealing with the doctrines concerning salvation, so when you hear salvation, you should understand that 
especially at the Reformation, that word was unpacked. And it's kind of like those, um, what are those called? Those Russian nesting dolls. You guys know what I'm talking about? And salvation's the largest one. But inside, there is effectual call, saving faith, sanctification, uh, repentance. All of those doctrines fit within the one larger category, salvation. Okay? So in dealing with salvation, the confession deals first with the acts of God. So effectual calling, justification, adoption. Those are acts of God. Then they move to the response of man. That is sanctification, saving faith, and repentance. Now, understand that they don't think that we sanctify ourselves wholly or that we repent of our own volition um, completely. And this is a bit crass, I think, but you could think of it almost like an emphasis being on God's acting in calling, justifying, and adopting, and an emphasis being placed on us in, the, in uh, saving faith, repentance, sanctification. Don't be alarmed. That's not, technically, that's inaccurate, but if you just kind of want to categorize things in your mind that way, uh, you can. If, however, the Westminster divines were going to, pre- to present um, these teachings in the order that they actually happen in our lives, they would begin with conversion, so repentance and faith, and that would immediately follow effectual calling. I'm just pointing out to you that the order that the the doctrines are listed in the confession are not the order that we actually experience them in in life. Um, You know, I don't really know why I'm pointing that out to you. I find it interesting, but also, I guess, just, just realize, though, that, that, that yeah, the, the order in which they're presented is not the order that we experience them. So just, just keep that in mind. Okay, with that being said, let's look at the first paragraph, if you have it in front of you, or if not, you can just listen. Um, and if you have looked it up online, the, it might be a little bit different depending on the, tran- or I say translation, the original one's in English, <laughs> the way that it's been, quote, unquote, updated. Um, which is funny because, yeah, people get a bee in their bonnet over the way it was updated. But anyways, it might be a little bit different. But here's a modern version of uh, the first paragraph. So this is of repentance unto life, paragraph one. Repentance unto life is a gospel grace, the doctrine of which is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, just as is the doctrine of faith in Christ. Okay, so um, paragraph one. The last chapter, you guys may remember um, from last week on saving faith, (coughs) discusses faith and its relationship to life. Faith and life. The Bible also speaks of something else, uh, many other things, but another thing that brings about life. And that is repentance. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, for example, we find this. Acts 11, 18. When they heard these things, by the way, this is Peter's like bringing a report to the church about the Gentiles and um, their, their conversions. 
says, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, and this is the key point, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Okay, so right there, and there's, there's other places that the assembly cites that gets at the very same idea. But right there, we have the explicit putting together of repentance and life. Okay? Uh, and this is why, did, you guys, did anyone catch when I was reading what kind of grace is repentance? They call it a, a particular type of grace. A gospel grace. Okay? They call it a gospel, or the, the historic text says... Uh, is an evangelical grace. An evangelical grace. Don't think of a voting block. Uh, think of the actual word, okay? An evangelical grace. Because it brings about life. A.A. Uh, Hodge notes that repentance, like faith, is freely given. It's freely given to us for Christ's sake. And is our obligation. It is freely given. So because it's an evangelical or a gospel grace, it is freely given, but it is also obligatory. It is our obligation to repent, but it's freely given. How you square that circle, I I don't know. At some point, you know, we're dealing with the mysterious working of God's sovereignty and our free will, which they dealt with in uh, chapter 12, I think, or 11, it's on free will. Uh, But I just want to point that out, freely given our obligation. And notice what's stressed here in the confession. Uh, Like I just said, that it's given and obligatory. They cite, interestingly, Zechariah 12.10, And this is where the prophet looks forward to a time and he's looking at a a period of history, might even say a dispensation, Uh, (laughs) not to be uh, conflated with dispensationalism, but looking forward to a period of time in which the spirit will be poured out. And Zechariah says, a spirit of grace will be poured out on the inhabitants of David's house. Now, the reason they cite this, and it's because I've left out the subject, is that he looks forward to a a moment in history when God, says Zechariah, will pour out the spirit of grace. So who's acting in Zechariah 12? It's God. God is pouring out a spirit of grace. Yet, they also cite Mark 1.15, as well, as well as other uh, passages where Christ, and if you remember uh, Mark's gospel, he just gets right into Christ's ministry. It's like a couple prefatory remarks and boop, gets right to it. Um, so the 15th verse, we already have Christ beginning his ministry. And the first thing he says is repent of your sins. So in, out of the mouth of our Lord, we have him stressing the fact that this is obligatory. Whereas with Zechariah, we have him stressing the fact that this is freely given. Again, figure it out. I'm not sure that we can, but that's what the scripture uh, clearly tell us. And also we have in paragraph one that repentance is to be preached by every minister 
of the gospel. And we're going to get more uh, in particular about this in paragraph two, so I won't belabor it here. Um, But we will see why both it must be preached and also why, I think this is crucial for us, but also why it would be tempting not to preach repentance. Okay? And I think maybe for hopefully a church like ours, it might be confusing. Why would you not preach repentance of sins? Um, But if you think about it, Sin is not popular. You know, it doesn't sell books. If you go to like a standard fair kind of Christian bookseller, in fact, I have a friend who works in Christian publishing and will propose ideas about for books or whatever on sin or something like this. And the response he gets is, that won't sell. No one wants to read about that. Give us something like uplifting. Um, and that's, yeah, that's true. That's straight from the horse's mouth. So here's a paragraph two. It's a bit longer. Paragraph two. By, by the way, feel free to interject whenever or ask a question so that I can deflect um, but, uh, or ask someone else <laughs> whenever you want. Okay, paragraph two. By it, so that's repentance, by it, a sinner seeing and sensing not only the danger but also the filthiness and hatefulness of his sins because they are contrary to God's holy nature and his righteous law turns from all his sins to God in the realization that God promises mercy in Christ to those who repent and so grieves for and hates his sins that he determines and endeavors to walk with God in all the ways that he commands. So the idea here is turn, I mean, there's a lot there, but turning from sin and turning to God. Um, If I could put it to you this way, this paragraph helps us to think through the grounds of repentance, okay? The grounds of repentance, as well as the essence of repentance. The grounds and the essence. Um, So I'll reread to you a a portion of the paragraph. Seeing and sensing not only the danger, but also the filthiness and hatefulness of his sins, because they are contrary to God's holy nature and righteous law. So a part of repentance is the Christian's true sense of sin and guilt. True sense of sin and guilt. Now, I want to go back to the freely given and the obligatory nature of this. How can one come to a true sense of his sin and guilt? Only by the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in him and awakening or renewing, regenerating, reforming, whatever you want to call it, his affections. Outside of that monergistic, that is one-way Um, movement, not synergistic, we don't cooperate with God in this way, but monergistic, outside of that monergistic um, act of God's grace to renew and restore your affections, you cannot come to a true sense of your sin and guilt. So again, repentance is freely given, freely given. Um, Let's see. 
sir. There used to be a clock back there. I think. Okay. I had a few notes here on the different types of what this would feel like to have a true sense of guilt. Um, I'll give you some phrases, but I'm not going to spend too much time talking about it just for time. But there's a consciousness of guilt. You have a consciousness of pollution. Um, and those two together, I had some other points in there. But just know that there's the, uh, those are two categories you can think of. What, what does that mean to have a true sense of guilt? Is, uh, in part, it means you're conscious of your guilt and you're also conscious of your pollution. Um, but another, if you caught it, another ground of repentance is a bright apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. A bright apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. And I will say, this is necessary for true repentance. If you do not apprehend the great and magnificent mercy of God in our Lord Jesus Christ, you have no repentance. It is essential for repentance that you recognize the mercy of God in Christ. Yeah, I would say exactly that. I was, uh, the, my next kind of point here is talking about false repentance. What is that? And I think everyone understands false repentance. Um, even for the Christian, every time we feel guilty for our sin, that does not mean that you've repented. That means you have a conscience and you're a human being. So actually, just when you bringing that up, maybe that's a good point to, that we should remember that feeling guilt for your sin is not necessarily repentance. Is a little kind of nerve, uh, yeah, maybe nerve-wracking, but just remember that. Uh, that's a good start, but that's not repentance because pagans have the same feeling unless they, as Paul says in Romans 1, have so hard in their heart that they are completely calloused. So would you say that repentance and mortification are synonymous terms, or does mortification happen as a natural consequence of repentance? I think the latter I mean, I, I'm tempted to say, yeah, perhaps. Be, I, I assume you're meaning like, how, like mortification of sin, like John Owen. Yeah, I think John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin, is a book of repentance. So if you're using it like he is, I think so. And I haven't read that in years, but I, I'm pretty sure. But I would, I would also say absolutely it's essential to mortify sin as a part of your repentance. Because I guess mortifi- <coughs> mortification seems to be more like... Um, an active kind of aggression or against or killing your sin. But you, you mortify sin so that you don't have to repent of it. But you repent of it because you didn't mortify it. Right? Sure. And, and in order to like kill an enemy, you have to first be made aware of it. And I think the being made aware of it is also a part of repentance. Um, but yeah, I, I think you can think um, certainly very close mortification and repentance. Um, Okay, so on on the mercy in Christ, the Christian's new affections that have been reordered in uh, when, by the way, when are our affections reordered? In conversion. So the Christian's affections that have been reordered in conversion now, how can I put it? Uh, The Christian's affections echo and are harmonious with God's law. And they will not be satisfied. Well, I'll put it like this, um, just extending the music analogy here. The Christian's affections 
are harmonious with God's law, and the tuning fork is his mercy. They will not be satisfied unless they are tuned to mercy. And if you tune yourself to therapy or whatever, other, uh, sorry, that's, I mean things like therapeutic. If the goal of a thing is to make you feel better, that is not, the, Christianity doesn't have really a category for that. If by what you mean therapy is like to restore you, uh, yeah, that's fine. Um, but by the, uh, I just, all that to say, if your affections are renewed, they will only be satisfied with Christ's mercy. That is it. And so if you try to uh, kind of, quote unquote, self-medicate with pep talks or self-help or therapy or more pernicious things like drugs and alcohol or whatever it might be, you will not be satisfied. And you will also know because you're not satisfied that you have never actually repented. However, if you cling to Christ alone and trust him and delight in his mercy, you will be satisfied, which will actually be an evidence for you of your repentance, um, if that makes sense. Um, ba, 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 ba. Okay, I have a bunch more in this paragraph. I just want, I'll make one more point about um, turning from your sin and turning to God because we don't have loads of time here. Um, obviously, this is a turning from all of your sin, we don't get to have little sins that we keep in our pocket and not repent of them for when we want. Um, and I also want to point out, especially as I've stressed that repentance comes immediately with conversion. Repentance is ongoing, however. We are converted once. We repent forever. Well, I shouldn't say forever. Till we die. Okay? Converted once, repent daily. Um, that's important to keep in mind. And also on false repentance, we've already brought it up uh, in conversation, but there is such a thing as false repentance. And we could say a lot about this. I'll just say that genuine repentance is known in part because it perfectly conforms to Scripture and also by its fruits. Genuine repentance springs from regeneration and leads to life. Anything else that you call repentance, if it doesn't conform to Scripture, I'm saying you guys, <laughs> anything anyone calls repentance, I'm like, yeah, you guys are my crosshairs. Any, any, anything that someone calls repentance, if it does not perfectly conform to Scripture, if it does not spring from regeneration and bring about eternal life, it is not repentance. And I'd also add a fourth, I guess, that if it is not satisfied with Christ's mercy, so if, for example, you feel as though in response to your guilt that you will conform your life in such a way as to make atonement, you're not repenting. Let's say you have some, uh, I don't know, let's say that you have a particular struggle with alcohol and you cannot stop, you know, getting drunk. And you get drunk and you tell yourself, that's it, I'm gonna repent. And then you know, I'm gonna all down the drain and I'm gonna start running and I'm gonna do whatever to kind of like a form of self-flagellate or self-flagellation. That's not repentance. You are not making atonement for your sin. 
you might should do all those things. You might should pour your alcohol down the drain. You might should start running. You might should do any number of things. But don't think for a second that that's repentance. That doesn't do anything for your atonement. Um, doesn't do anything for your conversion. Well, I should be careful here. You strive for holiness, but just don't get confused on what's actually happening. You cannot pay for your sin. Okay? And maybe uh, because I swung too far in that direction. If you'll remember when we talked about justification in chapter 11, there's a really important word that the confession uses, and that word is imputation. Our righteousness is imputed to us. Imputed means transferred, credited. Um, It's a judicial and maybe even a financial term almost. You can think of it in that way. That's different than infused. Um, But anyways, that's where your righteousness is. It's not in your kind of white-knuckling your way to behavior, okay? Although you also remember that justification will bring about the behavior, okay? All right, paragraphs three and four. I'll do these together. Paragraph four especially is a... This will be worth committing to memory. It's just so beautiful. But paragraph three. Although repentance is not to be relied on as any payment of the penalty for sin or any cause of the pardon of sin, which is God's act of free grace in Christ, yet repentance is so necessary for all sinners that no one may expect pardon without it. And also read paragraph four. This is beautiful. Um, No sin is so small that it does not deserve damnation. No sin is so small that it does not deserve damnation. Nor is any sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. No sin is so small that it does not deserve God's perfect white-hot wrath. Yet, there is no sin so great that it can threaten for one second the soul of one who truly repents. That is good news. Um, let's see. I had a whole thing here about the, on the late medieval view of penance. Well, actually, maybe it is helpful. I'll go through it quick. <clears throat> so this is the late medieval uh, Roman doctrine of what would... If you're going to copy and paste into, I was going to say orthodox theology. Maybe that's a bit rude, but um, what we would call repentance, okay? And their view of penance or repentance, like how we talk about salvation, is kind of a Russian nesting doll. And it's got a few different parts to it. The first part is contrition. That means sorrow for your sin. The second part is confession. Confession to a priest who holds the powers of the keys of the kingdom because the Pope has given them to him. So contrition, confession, satisfaction. This is some painful work imposed by the priest to be performed by the penitent to satisfy divine justice. So, you know, a white lie, maybe it's like 15 Hail Marys or something like that. Murder somebody, I don't know, a lot. Hail Marys, okay? And, well, okay. 
I forget, I'm being recorded. I was going to make another Roman joke, but never mind. Uh, okay. Contrition, confession, satisfaction, absolution. Absolution is when the priest pronounces your forgiveness, that you are absolved of your sins. All of those taken together represent repentance, to restore the penitent into fellowship with God and restore their holiness. And that, if you're curious, is from the Roman Catechism, Part 2, Chapter 5, Questions 12 and 13. If you want to go look it up, I can, if you're curious, I can give it to you later. But you should be thinking to yourself, well, Pastor Brooks absolves us of our sins every Sunday, so what gives? I mean, don't we, do we do the same thing? Does Pastor Brooks hold the powers of the kingdom? No. Um, we distinguish the judicial from the declarative. Those are very different. Pastor Brooks declares absolution of our sins to us each Lord's Day, whereas the Roman position would be that the priest absolves judicially. You can think of it like this. The actual judge reading, think of it, the difference between a judge announcing a sentence and a juror announcing their decision. They're declaring what they have found, whereas the judge is the actual, well, okay, I guess they're an authority too. You see what I'm saying though, that the judge is the authoritative figure in the room. So he declares our absolution. He doesn't give it to us in a judicial sense. Okay. Paragraph four, no sin so small, no sin so great. I'm not going to comment on it much. Just, you should, if not commit it to memory, meditate on it. It's a beautiful truth um, that coheres to scripture, that we are never without uh, Christ's mercy should we repent. Okay. Paragraph five deals with... um, general and particular repentance, and it goes as follows. No one should be satisfied with a general repentance. Rather, it is everyone's duty to endeavor to repent of each particular sin particularly. That's how they say it. Each particular sin particularly. I think you guys know what this means. Um, if someone has ever, offend, uh, not just offended you, but sinned against you, and so you had warrant for your offense, and they come to apologize to you, and they're like, I'm so sorry, I, I, I've just had a really hard day, or whatever it might be. Everyone has received an apology that's more a cry for you to you know, feel sorry for them or something. So that's, a kind of, that's not, doesn't even approach general repentance. Another step up is to repent generally. And that would be something like, I'm, I'm a sinner. Yes, I know I'm a sinner. Um, I repent of my sins and I feel very bad for them. It's like, okay, that's true. We should all do that. That's very different than saying, you know, honey, I'm sorry I lied to you and I'm ashamed. That's particular repentance or particular confession. Or I'm sorry, not just that I said something mean about you, but I said this to these people. Will you forgive me? That's particular confession. Paul in 1 Timothy gives us an example of, of both. 
1 Timothy 1, 13 and 15, Paul says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, <laughs> but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. I'll just read 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Okay, he does both. In verse 15, that's a general repentance. Like, I am, I am a, the foremost of sinners. But if you notice in verse 13, he names each of his sins. That's particular repentance. Okay, we are called to both. Can I, can I tell you one cool thing about that one? Sure, yeah. Like, Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, red, redder, reddest. Yeah. Paul sticks both of those endings on that word. So it's like he's saying, I'm the worsterist. Worsterist. <laughs> is, right. Is that it, it may be ungrammatical, we're not sure. If he's, if he, he might actually be being that silly of like, yeah. or, or unconventional of, I'm the worsterist. Yeah. Uh, but, it, but I, I, yeah, I mean. How much he's like, compared to others and yeah. the whole list. Yeah, because, crucially, because Paul's affections were so finely tuned according to God's law. And again, that's the point. If, if you have a dull instrument, that is, if your affections are not properly tuned or if they're dull, it will be hard for you to have a true sense of guilt. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, too, because he, he really was, and this is this different side of the same coin, he was so convinced that the gospel that's why repentance, biblical repentance, is initially hard but so free. Because you actually are then experiencing the grace of God. When, when you, um, and in premarital counseling, this is one of my go-to things, apologize less and repent more. Because apologizing, you do that by mistake, but if you apologize for sin, you haven't actually dealt with the sin. You haven't actually brought it before the Lord. But when you, you you've kept it confined to <clears> human <throat> when you use the language of sin, forgiveness, repentance, that's when the Lord says, if you will confess your sins, I'll be faithful to cleanse mm-hmm. actually have dealt with it under the blood of Christ. And actually on that, I've got that text here, uh, my notes on the sixth paragraph. Um, let's go ahead and talk about, so that was general and particular repentance. Let's talk now about what the last paragraph does. That's public and private repentance. Um, I won't read that paragraph because if I don't, I think I can actually finish for the first time ever. So, having explained the difference between um, general and particular repentance, the divines now distinguish between public and private in paragraph six. And um, we are, well, they make the point that we're also commanded to confess our sins to God. And Psalm 51 is probably the most famous example of private repentance. This is the psalm that David pens right after the Bathsheba episode. Um, This will be a very familiar psalm to many of you. This is a famous example of private repentance. Likewise, in Psalm 32, the king here is confessing his sins to God, and he hides nothing, okay? Nothing at all. And here's the marvelous news Um, 
when, this is as true uh, as any mathematical law or axiom there is. When you confess your sin, you will find mercy. When you confess your sin, you will find mercy. That is a law that is embedded into every fiber of the cosmos. When you confess your sin, you will find mercy. Um, and Proverbs 28, 13 warns us of the consequence if we don't. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. But what about public repentance? So that's private. What about public repentance? I'll say I, this is a general rule that I pulled from a few different of the commentaries. When we, and, and actually in paragraph six, they discuss this. Uh, they talk about when you've scandalized someone in public. That when they basically are making the point that when we have scandalized another person, we should repent to them. Okay? So a husband, for example, must be willing to confess his sin to his wife if he has scandalized her. A mother ought to be willing to confess her sin to her daughter if she has scandalized her. A child, there are no children here, but a child ought to be ready and willing to repent to his parents if he has scandalized them. And James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that, notice what he doesn't say, that you may find mercy. James says that you may be healed. So not only are we guaranteed mercy when we confess our sins, but God in his kindness assures us that we will be healed. And I think probably not only individually, but publicly. Because he says, confess your sins to one another, and then y'all will be healed. But what if our sin is more public? At the dinner table, maybe. Maybe at the dinner table when you have another family over or in a meeting at work. Your repentance should be as public as your sin. I think is a general principle, which is hard, but don't sin. <laughs> you, won't have to, <laughs> you won't have to do it. <laughs> last thing, last thing, and then we're done. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the last kind of practical part of repentance, it's especially when we're talking about repenting to others, is forgiveness. And for those who have been sinned against, it is commanded of you. It is incumbent upon you to receive the repentance of your brother or sister. I wonder if it's dependent on people's emotional dispositions. For some, this is probably much more difficult than actually repenting, or to the person, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, personally, I probably fall in this category, um, I think, that 
I have a more difficult time forgiving than I do asking forgiveness. Um, some people are, I think, probably the opposite way and are much kinder than I am and don't hold the grudge as long. And, um, but it is incumbent upon you to forgive your brother or sister. Um, if God, whose justice and wrath are perfect, happily accepts your repentance and extends mercy to you, and so to you, to whoever is repenting to you. <laughs> That's really poor grammar, but you know what I'm saying. Um, so repentance, obviously, um, turning from sin to God, a part of conversion. Um, you know, we touched on the basics there, but one thing I think that is often left out uh, that, the, that the divines have in here is that the crucial part that the person receiving that repentance plays in repentance. And if you will not extend forgiveness, tragically, you will be the one that doesn't experience what James promises in James 5, that is healing. Okay, okay why don't we uh, stand and pray, as is Robert's uh, habit, okay, and then we'll get ready for worship. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your kindness. Um, thank you, oh God, for blessing the church with these great minds represented in the Westminster Assembly. I pray that you would give us clear eyes to um, read these things and absorb them. Help us now, Lord, to be brave, um, to repent of our sins. Help us to recognize our foe and to, with courage, kill it as we find it in our lives, to repent to you and to others, whoever we need. And I pray, Lord, that in so doing, we would be comforted by the promise of receiving mercy and also uh, find delight and joy in the fact that we will be healed. We um, long for the day, O oh God, when our repentance will no longer be necessary, for we will be in glory. Some of us, some of our loved ones are there now already. And we pray, Lord, that in the meantime, while we are here waiting, that you would give us the grace to do these things, which we cannot do of our own accord. In Christ's name.